This evening, congregation, your Bible, we would invite you to turn your attention to the Gospel according to John, chapter 14. We'll read from verse 15 through the end of the chapter. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we will then direct your attention to our Belgic Confession, Article 11. And you can find that in page 163 in your forms and prayers book in your pew rack. So we first read from the inspired Word of God, John 14. And we'll begin at verse 15 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The Lord Jesus Christ says as follows, If you love Me, keep My commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see Me no more. But you will see Me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love Me does not keep My words, and the word which you hear is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Article 11 of the Belgian Confession, entitled, The Deity of the Holy Spirit. And it writes as follows, We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but only proceeding from the two of them. In regard to order, He is the third person of the Trinity, of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, based upon anecdotal evidence, but also I would trust affirmed by your own experience, uh, the church throughout all ages, but especially in our age, stands in need of comfort. Uh, of comfort that is of a solid and reliable basis. Uh, a comfort that is 
a confidence as we live in the midst of a fallen world. You and I need comfort as we face the week that lies ahead, as we face perhaps the relationships that we experience, as we face uh, the activities which we will be engaged in. In this fallen world, there will always be, and there is always, a certain amount of brokenness, a certain amount of strain, a certain amount of toil. Uh, Indeed, as uh, my wife's grandfather used to say, it's a struggle from the womb to the tomb. Now, that's not necessarily an overly pessimistic look on life. That can be a realistic view of life. There is struggle from the womb to the tomb. So we have this need of comfort. But also the church has a need for holiness. Uh, The church, especially in our day, perhaps uh, more even than in a former day, is impacted uh, by secularism, by humanism, by all sorts of isms that are contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God and, and that undermine the imperative of holiness. But the Word of God is clear. We are to live holy lives not to merit or somehow gain our acceptance with our God, but we are to live lives of holiness, of moral purity, because we are in a living relationship with a holy God. And so the imperative of Scripture is clear. You and I are to be holy. We are to be holy, even as our God is holy. So we have a need for comfort and also a need for holiness. And that ought to drive us to the person and to the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you would agree that the Scriptures are clear, that we are to be a confident and yet holy people, then we also ought to be clear that you and I need the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to do this evening is spend our time together considering the Word of God along these lines as we view our belief concerning the Holy Spirit. We'll do so first of all by considering the person of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the importance of the Holy Spirit. So Article 11 of the Belgian Confession summarizes the basic teachings of the Word of God concerning the Holy Spirit. And we'll take that apart, Lord willing, uh, looking at the person, the work, and the importance of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, then, the person of the Holy Spirit. And we'll strive to be concise here, especially this evening, because... Earlier articles have dealt with the doctrine of the Trinity or the truth that there is one only God, but in that one only God, there are three distinct persons with individual subsistences, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. We know this not based upon our own imagination, nor based upon some type of scientific investigation that we make concerning God, but we know this based upon the revelation that God Himself gives us, a revelation that we find in the Word of God, a revelation which we believe as a result of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. So here already in our very knowledge of who God is, we see our dependency, yes, certainly upon what we call the object of revelation, but also the subject of illumination. Allow me an attempt at an illustration. As we were leaving uh, to come here to church this evening, uh, backing out of our driveway, and as we started going down the road uh, in a rural setting, my youngest son made a statement that I've often repeated. Well, it's darker than a pocket out here. Very, very dark. While our minds 
by nature are darker than a pocket. Now, God's revelation is clear within His Word. He clearly reveals that there is one only God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the Scripture clearly reveals that in this one God, there are three persons. We think of the baptismal formula. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But our minds are darkened so that we cannot perceive those things which are clearly revealed within the Word of God unless, unless the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates our minds by His powerful work in our soul. Then being illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to know basically two things about the Holy Spirit. The first is His eternal person. We reference, uh, just by way of example, many other references could be given, the statement that Peter made concerning the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, verse 3 and 4. And the whole context here is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property. Uh, and they brought a part of the selling price into the early New Testament church, and they laid it by way of an offering at the feet of the disciples, and they said, this is the full price. And Peter, he says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Peter very clearly says, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, Peter does, and he says, you have lied not to men, but to God. And so in that, just an example of Acts 5, verse 34, we see very clearly that the Holy Spirit is an eternal person within the Godhead. Peter says very clearly, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And you have lied to God. So therefore, we can deduce from that scriptural passage that the Holy Spirit, along with the Son and along with the Father, are very God of very God. And we say this because there have been ancient false teachings, ancient heresies, and there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to false teaching. Old Errors, old heresies, just simply get repackaged and re-gifted, you might say, to the church, although it is no gift, ultimately. And so that's why we ought to be engaged in the study of the church's history, because old errors are new errors. And old errors and new errors have denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. But they also have denied the very real person of the Holy Spirit. And so many individuals speak of the Holy Spirit as just being the, the force of God or the energy of God or the activity of God. Or if they do acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is a person, these ancient errors and these ancient heresies deny that He is eternal and say uh, that perhaps the Holy Spirit is some simply very elevated creature. Against all of that, we with the church of all ages, we insist in acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is an eternal person. And also that He is an eternal person by way of His eternal procession. Now here again, we, we go into the deep mysteries of the Trinity. But we believe, along with the church of all ages, that the Holy Spirit derives His personal subsistence or His personal existence. Now, the Holy Spirit does not derive divinity. He always has divinity. 
So it's not as if there was a moment in which the Holy Spirit became divine. And when we speak of deriving His personal existence, we're not referring to something that has a previous moment before it. And so maybe boys and girls and young people in your mind again just repeat the saying that there was never a time in which the Father was without the Son and there was never a time in which the Father and the Son were without the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential. But what we mean and what the church means when we speak about the procession of the Holy Spirit is that the Father and the Son breathe out the Holy Spirit. And that's why He's called the Holy Spirit. And in the original languages, that word that we translate, and correctly so, Spirit, has the idea of wind or of breath. And so that ties in with His proceeding forth from the Father and from the Son. So just as the Father begets the Son, so the Father and the Son breathe out in a supernatural, mysterious manner the personal, individual subsistence of the third person of the Trinity. Now again, we acknowledge that these are deep mysteries, but they are also points of practical relevance. Romans 8, verse 9 identifies the Holy Spirit as being the Spirit of Christ. Now, there has been a large segment of the Christian church known as the Eastern Orthodox Church that denies that the Spirit proceeds forth from the Son. They have disconnected the Spirit from the Son. And the result has been an unbiblical mysticism. And we're not speaking here in the abstract. There have been men, there have been persons within our own federation of churches who have succumbed to all sorts of unbiblical teachings because they fell into the trap of this divorcing of the Spirit away from the Son. We believe that the Spirit is intimately connected to the Father and the Son so that the Spirit takes that of the Son and applies it unto our hearts. And you might simply make this one basic point of application. The Holy Spirit always desires to glorify the Son. So some theologians have called the Holy Spirit the hidden person of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit does not seek to glorify Himself, but always seeks to glorify the Son. Because in glorifying the Son, the Father is most pleased. And so this practical point of application as we transition into our second point, within our Christian life, whether that be as individual persons, or whether that be as our nuclear families, or whether that be in this family as a congregation, we must always have the emphasis be upon the person and the work of the Son, even when we are speaking of the Spirit. And even when we are speaking of the Father. And so we continually need to reevaluate our own spiritual life and say, does Christ have the preeminence? Because if we understand the Holy Spirit properly, then Christ will have the preeminence. All because of this theological truth 
that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Well, with that basic understanding that the Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Trinity, is a distinct eternal person who proceeds from the Father and the Son, we can then turn to our second point and consider the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this evening we cannot be exhaustive in saying everything that the Bible reveals about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we seek to be content by stating the work of the Holy Spirit, first of all, in the accomplishment of redemption, and then secondly, in the application of redemption. And just a word of explanation behind those subpoints. Reformed theology has long made this distinction that there is the work of redemption or of salvation, but the work of redemption, which is one work, can be divided into two aspects. Uh, there is the historical objective accomplishment of redemption. The doing, if you will, of the work necessary to provide salvation to sinners such as you and I. Here especially we think of the steps or the states of humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is the foundation of our salvation. But that must then also be applied to the individual persons who are being saved, to the elect, to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we speak about the application of salvation, then we deal with an aspects of Reformed theology. It's typically classified as soteriology. But here we talk about regeneration or the new birth. Here we talk about the exercise of repentance and faith. Now these two always go together in the experience of true Christianity. And that's why we must always emphasize and we must always proclaim both of them. But in a wonderful way, they are both connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, then the accomplishment of redemption. Uh, Christ fulfills all the work necessary for redemption, but the Holy Spirit is the one who enables Him to accomplish all that is necessary. Especially uh, in the Incarnation. And as we move into the Advent season underneath God's providence, we find ourselves considering these matters again this evening. The incarnation, we can say this based upon the authority of Scripture, was only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to take the time this evening. Other opportunities will present itself to explain the supernatural manner of the conception of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ without the involvement of a human, earthly, biological father. We simply refer you to what is revealed to the Virgin Mary when she ponders and wonders and understandably has all sorts of questions concerning conception within her womb. And she says in essence to the angel, how can these things be? Because science tells us that conception always takes the involvement of a biological father. Well, the angel says in Luke 1, Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will in a supernatural way produce within the womb of the Virgin Mary a very real human nature, body and soul that will then be united to the divine nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And so the angel continues, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now we need to be clear again this evening, skeptics, those who scoff, those who mock, those who ridicule, ever since rationalism raised its ugly head, have completely ridiculed our belief of a supernatural conception as the explanation for the Incarnation. And I assure you, and especially young people, when you go off, if the Lord leads you that way, to universities and colleges, or if the Lord leads you into vocational life immediately, I assure you, you will meet people who will laugh when you say, I believe that Jesus Christ was conceived by a virgin, they will say, you don't honestly believe that, do you? Well, if we understand something of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, then with humility but also conviction, we will be able to say, yes, I do believe that. And when they ask, how can that possibly be? Our answer, the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and produced a very real human nature. So do you see how essential it is to the Christian faith to understand the divinity, the Godness of the Holy Spirit? Because who other than God can cause conception to take place within the womb of a virgin? But thanks be to God that God has done this so that we have a sinless Savior. Divine nature, certainly, but also human nature in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit does not simply accomplish the incarnation and then leave the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the Holy Spirit equips the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill all that is necessary for the accomplishment of salvation. And so we read also in Matthew 3, verse 16, and Matthew 4, verse 1, when He had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Him. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so you might say at every step of the historic work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for our deliverance, it was the Holy Spirit who was resting upon Him, who was equipping Him, who was enabling Him to accomplish the work that had been designated for Him to accomplish for our salvation. And so we ought not to be bored uh, with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but we ought to be amazed at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Not only in the accomplishment of redemption, but also then, as we said, in the application of redemption. Because Christ, and this is what He's saying in John 14 and in John 15, He's preparing the disciples. He's preparing the church for His eventual bodily absence. Now maybe we think of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and what benefit 
uh, does the outpouring of the Holy Spirit have that Christ is not bodily present with us, but the Holy Spirit is present with us through the application of redemption. And so even during the days of His earthly ministry, when Jesus interacted with Nicodemus, the, the teacher of Israel, and make no mistake about it, Nicodemus, he was a theological intellectual. He was not just uh, the run-of-the-mill man off the street. He was not just a commoner. Uh, in our lingo, he would have had all the degrees. He had studied in all of the prestigious theological institutions of his day. But he did not understand the application of redemption. And he says to Jesus, how can a man be born twice? When Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus doesn't understand this necessary work of a spiritual rebirth, of a spiritual passing from death to life. And there is reason to be concerned that many within the church, broadly speaking today, do not understand the necessity of a new birth. Of regeneration. It would be interesting to just pull our communities and just ask the average person walking up and down our town sidewalks, excuse me, would you explain what the new birth is? Would you explain what regeneration is? And then maybe press it a little bit further. Would you tell me why someone must be regenerated? Or why someone must be born again? Well, we have the answer. We must be born again because of our spiritual state and condition of death. We are prone to hate God and to hate our neighbor. And that proneness, if we can use that as a word, flows out of our depraved hearts. You can think of Ephesians 2, verse 1, where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and you being dead in your sins and in your trespasses. Notice, that's the backdrop for this wonderful statement that Paul makes. He made alive. So the work of the Holy Spirit is that making alive. That mysterious, supernatural work of regeneration. Or as the theologian, the late theologian, Louis Burkhoff said, and I'm summarizing no doubt, I don't have it perfectly, it's the instantaneous implanting of a new spiritual life in the soul of a person. Now regeneration occurs in the subconscious level of the soul, so a person typically is not aware that they have just been regenerated. But nevertheless, a very real change needs to take place. And you and I need to continually understand the necessity of regeneration. That a person must pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. John 3, verse 5, as we previously referred to, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Many of you perhaps have had the opportunity, the occasion, the responsibility to confront someone with the claims of the Christian Gospel. But it just bounces off their head and off their heart like a tennis ball off a brick wall. You say, I I, I can't understand why this person can't see the claims of the Gospel. I can't understand why this person will not repent of that sin. I can't understand why this person will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer may be that they have never passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, does that mean we just fold up our Bibles and we go home and we count them as a lost cause? Absolutely not. We continue to press the claims of the Gospel upon that person in a most winsome way, but we do so with dependency, but also with expectation that the Holy Spirit can do that which we cannot do. And this is why I believe the proper understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit is the most encouraging thing for a parent or for an office bearer. You and I as parents... We cannot change the hearts of our children. But the Holy Spirit can. And as an office bearer, especially in the office of elder, an elder cannot change the heart of a person. But the Holy Spirit can. And so the parent or the elder, their responsibility is to just simply lay the truth of Scripture before the individual praying that the Holy Spirit would accomplish the application of redemption. Not only in the initial regeneration, but also then uh, the production of the exercise of repentance and of faith. And so it's not just that we need the Holy Spirit in our initial rebirth into the act of Christian faith, but we need the work of the Holy Spirit continually to give us the spiritual energy. And we all know this at some level as it can be illustrated in the physical realm. I mean, imagine for a moment uh, that I was some athlete, and I know that takes a bit of imagination, but imagine I came to you and I said, you know, I'm, I'm beginning my training. I'm going to run this 5K race that Pella has in the spring. And you say, well, well good, you're going to need some energy for that. But I say, no, I don't think I need to sleep. I don't think I need to eat. I don't think I need to drink any water. You would say, that's foolishness. You need the energy that is derived from those three things if you hope to take a step in the spring. You and I need the continued work of the Holy Spirit within our soul to generate and to produce the exercise of faith. Now it is we who believe, but we believe as a result of the Holy Spirit's work within our hearts. It's not something that we muster up within ourselves, but rather something that the Holy Spirit works within us. And if we understand these things, then there ought to be a continued, earnest, faithful, diligent prayer that the Holy Spirit would come and indwell us. And that leads into our third point, the importance of the Holy Spirit. And now we want to tie back to our introduction 
where we mention that there is a need for Christian comfort and for holiness. The Holy Spirit is vitally important for the Christian, whether we want to view the Christian individually or whether we want to view the Christian community corporately. There is an importance for the Holy Spirit to dwell among us and within us for our Christian comfort. And here we want to turn more specifically to our text at hand. So if you look at John 14, verse 16 and verse 26, you'll notice that there is a contrast that the Lord Jesus Christ is painting. In verse 16, He says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever. And then, The contrast is in verse 17, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The same contrast is painted between verses 26 and 27. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So there is this remarkable contrast between those who have the Holy Spirit, the church, the Christian, and those who do not have the Holy Spirit, the world, or the non-Christian. And, and what the Holy Spirit does within the heart of the Christian church is produced as a measure of comfort or of confidence by applying the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by assuring the Christian that they have a part in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So both by taking that which Christ has accomplished in His work of salvation, especially the work of redemption and atoning, sacrificial, substitutionary death and applying the benefits of that to the life of the Christian, but then also by assuring the Christian based upon the testimony of the Word of God that these benefits are truly theirs. And I know we had preparatory this morning. but We want to make this point also because next Sunday morning, Lord willing, if I have all the right forms figured out and if they haven't changed it too much with the the newer versions, there will be this proclamation just before the elements of the Lord's Supper are distributed. Let us not doubt that the Holy Spirit will bless the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments to the increase of our faith and to the comfort of our hearts. You see, that's the importance of the Holy Spirit for Christian comfort. And if you think in your own life, as I think in my own life, the times that I have been most discomforted, spiritually speaking, were the times that I had forgotten the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only for Christian comfort, but also for a Christian walk. Uh, We want to be clear here also, If you look at John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's much debate in certain circles about whether or not the Christian needs to keep the commandments of God, whether the Christian needs to walk a certain walk or live a certain life. I don't totally understand the confusion. 
Uh, of course, we don't keep the commandments of God in order to become the people of God. Just like our biological children don't keep the house rule, so to speak, in order to become our children. But as Christians, we ought to strive to keep the commandments of God because we are the children of God. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Have you ever heard a person talk about the love of Jesus Christ while they are ignoring the commandments of God? I have. It's perplexing. You love Jesus, but you violate the commandments. Something doesn't match. Not that we're saying we keep the commandments of God perfectly, but we walk according with the small beginnings of obedience. And this is why it is so important to connect the work of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 17, the Spirit of truth. Well, what is truth? Elsewhere in the Gospel according to John, the Word of God is identified as truth. The Word, small w, the, the Scriptures, but also the Word, capital W, the Son is identified as truth. Jesus Christ Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 17, verse 17, Jesus Christ prays, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify the Christian. Sanctify the Christian church. Your Word is truth. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And that's because what the Holy Spirit does is takes the truth of the Word of God and applies it to the heart of the people of God. And so we need to be clear as a warning, but also as an encouragement if you, and I say this especially to the young people of this congregation, if you ever believe that the Holy Spirit is suggesting, leading, guiding, prompting you to do something, to believe something, to follow through on something that you do not have clear direction for in the Word of God, we say this with an absolute conviction that is not the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is connected to the Son. And the Spirit is connected to the Word. So if you ever have something inside of you encouraging you to follow whatever it may be, your destiny, the path to true happiness, and it's contrary to the Word of God, I say this with pastoral love, but that is your fallen inclination. That is not the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and impresses that Word upon the soul of the Christian so that the soul of the Christian begins to love the commandments and begins to follow after the commandments. Not out of some legalistic fear, but rather out of a love. Because of course the Holy Spirit loves the Son with an eternal love. And the Holy Spirit loves the Father with an eternal love. And the Holy Spirit's greatest desire is that the Son might be glorified. And the Son explicitly says unto us, if you love Me, keep My commandments. 
And so something tonight of the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, our simple prayer is that the Holy Spirit might come and reside within our hearts and might lead and guide this congregation in the way of life everlasting. The old paths of the Scriptures that we might appreciate and understand, especially the work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the accomplishment and in the application of redemption. That our hearts might be truly comforted. That we might be encouraged to walk in faith and in genuine repentance, seeking to serve You and to glorify You both now and all the days of our lives. These things we humbly pray for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.